Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. I and all the other members of the small team who produce Voices of Esalen are making a purposeful stance at this moment to dedicate a significant portion of upcoming programming to exploring issues of systemic racism, power, and entrenched privilege. To this end, you'll hear from more people of color with the goal of using this podcast as a platform for anti-racism. Here, we hope to have the uncomfortable conversation, voice the difficult issues, and share the mic. This is a work in progress. My guest today is Nkechi Njaka. She's a neuroscientist, meditation teacher, modern dancer, multidisciplinary artist, and the co-host of the podcast Dating White. Nkechi is a 2017 YBCA Truth Fellow and an upcoming 2020 Kennedy Center Artist-in-Residence. Her practice, whether it be art, science, or an exploration of personal and conceptual relationships, is always a vehicle for radical presence and progressive wellness. Nkechi Njaka, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Thank you so much for having me. So you're a neuroscientist. You've been a professional modern dancer and choreographer, and now you're a teacher of mindfulness. You say your practice is a vehicle for radical presence and progressive wellness. Let's start our conversation there. Talk to me about that. I've spent my whole life in sort of an exploration and investigation of what it means to be present and what it means to be in the body. I think, I mean, I didn't have language for it until being a neuroscientist and working with the modality of mindfulness as a way of treating chronic pain, addiction, depression, and anxiety. Being still within the body and actually listening to the body is the best way that I have found to heal and to heal myself specifically. So what, what tell me about radical presence. What, what's meant by that? Yeah, so mindfulness is actually an embodied practice and I, I think sometimes that gets missed. Um, and so the radical, the radical piece of that presence is, is really coming back to the body that we exist in and whatever it has to say to us at any, any given moment. Right. Yeah. I like that you, uh, that you voiced that, that mindfulness is an embodied practice. And I do, I do think that gets lost. I mean, certainly when I was thinking about uh, how your work is so varied and there's so much intersectionality. It's like, you've done this, you've done that. And and there's mindfulness, but it's sort of like, it's not a separate uh, discussion necessarily. And I want to ask you too about this idea of like progressive wellness. Within that progressiveness, is there a consideration of identity? I'm I'm kind of asking you to to speak specifically. Is there like a consideration of of race or or class and and privilege within that uh, consideration of identity? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, when I think of progressive wellness, I think of it beyond whiteness. That I mean, that's what I mean <laughs> when I say that. Um, I don't know that everyone interpret, interprets it that way, um, but it that is what I mean um, just because of who I am and what body I exist in, which is the body of a woman of color. And I think that for me to be in the pursuit of my own freedom and my own liberty and my own peace, that has to be progressive because 
or and maybe radical because I do see and I feel and I experience and I've heard of and know of the sort of the history of wellness being suspended for some people and people's groups that I belong to. So it's a complicated part of the conversation of wellness for sure. And I think, I mean, the thing about mindfulness and the thing about meditation is that it is free. (laughs) Like, it doesn't actually like anyone can do it and anywhere and it has this incredible potential to heal and that really should be available to everyone. Mm-hmm. What is your experience of being in the wellness space as a woman of color? I just kind of wanted to hear a bit about your personal experience. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, when I, when I, expressed my identity as a woman of color um there is some vagueness to that and it is because i am a person of mixed race and phenotypically black so i'm red as black i am black i mean it's not i'm not denying that identity and i also think that you know blackness is is nuanced and it's also varied so i might use these words interchangeably which is also why I'm mentioning that um, now because I think um, that is also part of the conversation of how we identify and um, and what what do those identities even and how do they play a role in in our way of understanding and connecting to one another. Once I started thinking about wanting to teach mindfulness, I didn't have a really clear example of what that would look like, largely because I had been in science for so long and. I had known of places like Spirit Rock, but I'd go to Spirit Rock and it would be a lot of teachers that were older, um, like in their 60s, <laughs> older than me, and um, white, and I also, and, and male. And so I kind of didn't really, it didn't really compute as like a possible career. I would attend Wanderlust every single year and not even see meditation offered all the while, like never really seeing anyone of color. (laughs) So I just kind of wondered where is my place in this, in this industry? Where is my place in this as a career? And what is that going to look like? And I really didn't have a pathway. Um, It's been kind of a, an interesting process to pave my own way because I definitely don't know any female practitioners of color who are neuroscientists who also teach mindfulness, but there are certainly white men that do. And yeah, it, it, it's been, it's been interesting to, to piece it all together. Have you ever been to, to Esalen before? And if so, like, what was your experience there? Yeah. My first time going to Esalen was my senior year in college. Yeah. Went to Esalen at night and, and soaked in the tubs and I, I was like, I think I'm in heaven. <laughs> this is the most magical. I mean, and every time I've been back since, it's I have the same feeling. It is um, such a special, special place. What is it like for you uh, as a woman of color when you're kind of like checking into that identity piece around it to be at F1? Um, well, this is an interesting question because... I have spent the majority of my life around white people, so I don't really, I didn't think about it then. Um, And I didn't even think about it the last time I was there, which was like two years ago. 
I kind of expect wellness spaces to be white, to be honest, um, which is like my own programming that could afford to be challenged. And I think it's just because of where I live and how I've grown up. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's right that I have that assumption. I, I, I would love to see spaces to be more inclusive and more representative of the types of people that practice and live and exist. And, you know, I'm curious too about like the conditions that arose for, you know, when you were growing up for you to be around white people all the time. And then I'm, I'm also curious because you said about two years ago, you started to question it. Right. And so um, what, what kind of change occurred? Mm, mm-hmm. So the first question is growing up in predominantly white spaces. I grew up in a suburb of Minneapolis um, called Minnetonka for those people who are from Minnesota. It's very white. Um, and I actually grew up in an all Jewish neighborhood. So I think that my experience of race is very different than most people of color because actually I think even my my sibling. I mean, I think it varies person to person. Um, but I definitely grew up really thinking that the only difference of our family was that we didn't celebrate Christmas or that we didn't celebrate Hanukkah. We celebrated Christmas. And so I just never really thought that much about race, um, until I went to college. And it's not that I didn't know that I was, that my skin color is brown. I did know that, but it didn't really create difficulty for me. I definitely had kind of the microaggressed experiences that I think a lot of people of color experience in predominantly white schools. And I kind of moved through that part of my life up until 18, really not thinking too much about race in terms of impact and and in terms of like the structure of of whiteness and, and the way that this country has been built. And I just haven't I just didn't think about it. College was interesting because I was recruited and brought to, I went to school in Claremont, California. I went to Scripps College and I was recruited my senior year for this like very special like weekend for prospective students of color. So it's a very like intentional, an intentional four day event. And, and it wasn't just black students, it's Latina students and Asian students and um, you know, a wide spectrum of non-white students that were looking at scripts. And I couldn't believe, <laughs> I couldn't believe like the amount of brown people that I was seeing and people of color. And, and when I say there was like a handful of people I went to high school with, it was a handful and they were all my friends, but it just was very, again, I thought that like the similarity between me and my friends, um, in, in high school were that we all had immigrant parents, Um, rather than like a racial thing specifically. So in college, when I did decide to go to Scripps, um, it was really shocking that there were only four women in my class that were, would have identified as being black or half black or partially black. And that was when I started to understand race differently because there's a large, there's a lot of encouragement, I guess, to, to sort of form community with other black students and I didn't feel like I fit in. And so it was this like weird, like dissonance. You didn't feel like you fit in with the the black students? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I didn't. Um, I, 
<laughs> like there's not really like a a sweeter way of saying that I, I I didn't I feel like there's two really like specific like college experiences that sort of mark mark this and one of them is that there was like a black student union like retreat and I was recruited for it and I kind of was not I kind of wasn't sure like if it was something I, I wanted to go because I was curious and I got to interact with students from the other four college campuses. Um, but yeah, I just, I didn't grow up with a lot of uh, people of color. I didn't grow up in black community. And so the ways in which I felt different, I, I felt like, I felt like I was like missing, missing something like missing the joke or like missing black culture is, is what I really mean. Um, and you know, missing, missing aspects of, of a way in which a lot of people that I think were on this retreat had commonality. My exposure to black culture really was my family. And, and that even came with, you know, nuance, um, as well, because my, I, half of my family is Nigerian and an immigrant. And so that is very different than my mother's side of the family that is Southern. And I feel like, I mean, looking back on it, like, I think that I would have, I would approach it differently now, but I think, you know, we're 18 years old. And I think that the emphasis of us getting together was to basically say like, we're all the same. We've all had the same experiences and we should stick together. Like this is our community. And I kind of was met with a little bit of resistance and, and didn't kind of, and I didn't feel like, yeah, I didn't feel like fully a part, a part of it. I didn't feel like I fully belonged. And it's interesting too, because we can't assume (laughs) that, everyone with the same skin color is going to have the same experience and the same upbringing and the same perspective and the same interest and the same way of speaking. And it's really quite naive and ignorant to assume that. And I also think that like on the flip side of it, there is a lot of spaciousness to include other, other, I guess I'll call them black identities in the larger black identity. So me liking you know, Radiohead and listening to Smashing Pumpkins and really loving like Elliot Smith and Death Cab for Cutie. This is early 2000s, <laughs> like bright eyes and like all this really sad indie rock, like that can be a part of the black experience. It's interesting because I would go to shows all the time and I'd be the only person of color. But I think that, you know, the way in which I think about identity is obviously different than how I thought about it 18, you know, when I was 18 years old. But now, I love that we're having this conversation and sort of unpacking the fact that there is nuance to racial identity. I mean, there's just there's this desire within the United States to create these really set, really hard categories and standards of behavior that we're all expected to accord to. I just want to acknowledge that, yeah, people of color have different experiences. I totally get that. I think there's a, a bit of like an underlying assumption with uh, with an interview, especially it's like, I'm the white guy, I'm going to call up a woman of color and ask her to explain the woman of color experience for me. And um, what, what I hope that comes through with my line of questioning is that 
I'm completely happy to hear your personal experience. And I don't expect that you're going to sort of like explain what it is to be a, to be a woman of color like in today's in today's culture. I, 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 I feel like we'll get closer to answering that question, but it won't be answered, you know, through this, through this interview. Mm. Yeah. I appreciate you articulating that because it's, it's true. Like I'm, I'm only one perspective and, and even in the like very intimate, like number of people in my family, we've all had, my family has all had different experiences too. I mean, yeah, it, it, so much influences an experience and like that could be you know the neighborhood that we grew up in or the school that we went to or even like the time and in, in, in life I feel like so many um I've been hearing from a lot of college age students that have listened to my my podcast who are having a totally different <laughs> experience like just generationally um let's talk about your <laughs> let's talk about your podcast in an explicit way then so tell me what the name of it is and what's the intention behind the the podcast yeah so <laughs> my podcast is called dating white and i host it with maisha battle who is a sex and dating coach and um together we offer sort of our perspective as women of color um, as black women, as minority women who date predominantly white men. And we sort of, and I guess this answers your question about like two years ago. I mean, I think that that is when I became a little bit more critical of like whiteness in general and, you know, white adjacent or like what's, that white. What's white adjacent? Oh, like, like how close you are to whiteness <laughs> um, or like, like subscribing to whiteness. That would be how I would describe white adjacent like um like like I'm I'm not white but there are things that I do that are that we could call white <laughs> what are, like dating a white guy or uh no no <laughs> no I think like well now now I'm sort of like deconstructing this idea too because it's like well I mean that assumes that white is normal and like white white is centered and this is hard because white majority would have us center whiteness, I I think. And, you know, that's, that's how we've all been conditioned. And so the podcast actually has really allowed me to sort of like, think about even how I talk about how I even talk about it and like, and myself included in that. And it goes back to this idea that like my, my, just like my experience of being myself can, can be included in the experience of blackness. I think that maybe there's a way to, in that to maybe not call certain things whiteness. So I don't know, this is like very much like in real time, like, like critiquing, because I feel like when I think of white adjacent, I think of like, okay, where I live in San Francisco feels very white to me. Like I look around, there's white people, I live in the Presidio and I mean, it's, I live in the woods. Like I, I <laughs> yeah, I live in the woods um, and it's, it's removed. And I think that it being removed uh, has, you know, kind of the connotation that it's not a lot of brown people, not a lot of black people, definitely not a lot of black people, not a lot of brown people either. Like, I think it's like when we think of like those terms, like hippie or like hipster or like, um, I don't know, granola or sp- even like, 
I don't, I'm trying to think of like the spirit, like the spiritual version of those words. It's like, you kind of, whatever, whatever comes to mind, it's like very often not a person of color. And so that's kind of what I mean when I think of like, like white adjacent, it's like just how we think about certain categories. And then it's like, it doesn't really include, it doesn't really include other people. Well, what's interesting, I I think about the, um, the hippie ideology, and I might even extend this to the mindfulness world, is that there's this kind of conceptual framework that encourages people to go beyond identity with a, with a capital I and shed the ego with a capital E, whether it's the Buddhist ideology or if you're checking into the Eckhart Tolle way of thinking. And I have to admit that I've been completely into that concept but it does because i've i've gone through so much ego pain myself and i've seen that like gosh i'm so much happier when i can just tap into my my universal self and not worry about whatever my accomplishments my blah 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 but that whole idea is based on a conceptual framework that denies the idea that your racial identity or your class position could be extraordinarily hurtful in defining where you where you stand do you you know what i'm saying it it, it has this enormous blind spot yes i completely agree and i think going back to the the term white adjacent i think like the way that i was describing it was like kind of in a cultural in a cultural way which obviously is inextricably linked to privilege and and class and like different categories of defining people and people groups and I think that for like in the context of being a minority who might have where white adjacent is like a thing in their reality it's like that is actually privilege in in a lot of ways and I and I definitely benefit from white adjacent privilege and my proximity to whiteness having grown up in in structures that were actually like built for white for whiteness and white people and then like I'm kind of like I'm kind of like let in as like the one the one not white person and so I I learned a lot about the structure and I learned a lot about how to be and how to exist and how to survive in it and that does give me privilege and you know I may not have the same privilege as a white person but I definitely hold privilege and I think if there's anything that this pandemic has really illuminated for me is is my own privilege, which I was aware of, and I could see it more clearly, like so many other things that were illuminated during this this time. And I think that it is really harmful to to not acknowledge it because again, i'm 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 a product of of the structure. like, we all are it white supremacy systemic racism is woven into the fabric of every single thing that exists in in this country and so we are constantly informed by that and and it is our job individually to to be critical to ask questions to rethink how it might be exclusive or harmful. And that goes beyond race. It includes 
gender, it includes class, it includes education, it includes opportunity and resources, it includes language, <laughs> like what language you speak and how you speak it, and it includes sexuality, and it includes, um, you know, really any way that we, religion, any way that we identify, any way that we have been told we need to identify is a product of it. I feel like the critique of it all started with dating <laughs> for me. I mean, kind of like, I think I just kind of like accepted in like the industry. There was a really pivotal um, moment in which I started to see wellness be more inclu- inclusive of black women, brown women. Um, and that was maybe around five years ago at the, at when, um, Black Girl in Ohm was created. Um, my good friend Lauren Ash had this beautiful idea to um, to center Black women and wellness. And I feel like that was kind of the first time I I started thinking about what was possible for wellness in terms of representation. But as far as being critical of like white wellness, I think that that took me a minute. And I think I just started being becoming more critical Yeah, in this work that I'm doing with <laughs> trying to understand my my dating preferences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, really brilliant insights. I'm so glad you brought up all this, the nuance in, into this discussion and just echoing what you were saying that the, that we all kind of have the opportunity, I'm not going to say responsibility, I'll, I'll couch it in terms of opportunity to examine our own privilege. I most certainly have been on a uh, journey of examining my own privilege from this uh, coronavirus pandemic. I mean, just the, my wife and I were talking about it, this concept that shelter in place, you better, you got to have a place to shelter <laughs> yeah. if you're going to be, be like that. And a lot of people don't. Um, and we're lucky enough to, and then of course the kind of cultural uprising that's happening in our in our country in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and the sort of like waking up that we're doing to not only issues of police brutality but the systemic racism, as you put it, that so characterizes our nation to the point that we have a, an actual white supremacist as uh, as our president, and it just sort of gets this this nod all the time. Uh, it's like yeah, people are like yeah, yeah, he's racist. And it's, it's what it is, but it's not like it's, it's mm. causing an outcry. And in, in any case, it is interesting to hear a woman of color talk about the privilege that she has as well because every person is, is different. Every person has access to, to different systems of power that reify their position. Yeah, it's really interesting and, and thought-provoking to hear your, your perspective on this. Um, yeah, so I was checking out your podcast, which is really cool. Everybody needs to listen to Dating White. And I was uh, listening to an episode. I forget the title of it. It might have been Whiteness. You're, you're, you're checking into this invisible category, or white people tend to think it's invisible, um, with a, a lot of humor and uh, and wisdom. Your, your co-host is really uh, really, really cool too. Um, and one of you said this quote, you cannot get through this being like a, an interracial relationship with the idea that love is blind. You, you kind of have to address the, the topic of racism. So I want to ask you to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I think that we, well, yeah, we can't. I mean, I'm trying to think of this from like the, from like a mindfulness perspective. And I think that what I hope to contribute to the dating white (laughs) conversation is a way to like mindfully relate, right? Um, when I think of love is blind kind of, or I don't see color or love is love. I mean, I've literally had someone say that to me and it is really dismissive of, of the experience of being a minority. I don't know many minorities that would actually say that because it is, it's inclusive to the love. And I always say that like in my teaching and in my classes, love is a practice and it's an action. It's not a feeling. And I would even argue that the feelings of love can sometimes be harmful. Like I feel like, you know, the, this idea that, I mean, I'll, and without talking too much about relation, relating and relationships in general and kind of our attachment styles and like what informs that and the psychology of, of bonding and this, even the science of it. It's like, it, it's not always, um, it's not always in accordance to, uh, David Rico's the five A's, which is like, kind of like my Bible of like mindful relating. And, um, and I feel like to be, you know, in a practice of loving someone, if you're paying attention, if you're affirming, if you're allowing, if you're, accepting I'm trying to think of the fifth one you actually have to to listen (laughs) and listening would include the experience of being a minority or the experience of difference and the experience of of just another person having their own human experience and so I don't think feelings override that experience at all, ever. I think we can see that in the ways that it plays out not even in interracial relationships, whether it's with friends or family or lovers, um, or even children. It's like, we all have the capacity to cause harm, even if we, even if we do love, (laughs) whether it is a, a race, whether race is part of it or not. And so I just don't think I believe that love is blind, period. It's not like, I don't know if I agree with the statement. I, I'm sure Maisha said it. I, I agree with the statement, but I also think that that ex- extends beyond um, interracial relationships. Tell me a little bit about the reaction that you've gotten from your listening audience to the Dating White podcast. And, and has there been reaction from uh, people of color in, in either direction? Yeah, um, this is this is a really like has been a really interesting part of sort of releasing this content out into the world. I think that both Maisha and I were really slow at kind of our production process. Like we we met like three years ago and have been kind of talking about this and in this conversation for three years. And um, I think our biggest fear was we were worried that people would like misunderstand us and maybe even think that we were racist because we, our dating preferences are specific. And, um, even as, even as I say that, I'm like, 
that's also, you know, could be misunderstood. Like, I don't, my, my, (laughs) my choice in dating white men up until this point has been really because I've been in predominantly white spaces. And, and I think that to understand kind of where we're coming from means like kind of a, a listening of every, of everything that we're saying and not just, not just the point of dating white. It's actually so much more than that. But the reactions we've been getting, um, I love I, someone. Someone reached out to me yesterday, who expressed feeling challenged by my identity as a mixed race person, and I, I thought that was really interesting. She identifies as black, and that identity challenged her, and and then she also expressed that she felt it was brave to to be expressing a mixed race identity when I'm red as black. And that just speaks to also that the majority of the majority of black people in in I guess I can't say that. I don't know cuz the way that the census is structured it's actually to like not include the nuance of mixed raceness. Um the the census is so limiting. So even being able to to say that I am black and and white and Indian is like not like it's a check one situation so what that does is it just categorizes me as whatever one that I check and it's it's not really an honest it's not really honest system but the reason why I think it was created that way is because of the way in which whiteness wants to group people together and and not for account for for the subtleties of, of difference and so she felt challenged by that I thought that was really interesting and yeah, I don't know the percentage of of mixed race people that would consider themselves black, but I think but I think that that presents another conversation of like, well, we don't really know. <laughs> like, we don't really know. We can't we can't really assume, I guess. Um and the, you know, the majority of of black Americans may not know their ancestry. I happen to know half of mine because my dad is an immigrant, and so there's also that that component. Um I've gotten really great feedback from college uh, women of color sort of critiquing or even just challenging us to critique whiteness more. And I thought that was really, I thought it was really great because I, and then I was also like, I don't even know what that would look like because again, it's like a generational thing. I feel like 18, 19 year olds are so much more comfortable challenging the systems that we're in. Like, you know, I feel like someone in my late thirties, it's like social media only became a thing after I was an adult. And so like the, the way in which we can like be public about and kind of even the confusion of like, what's professional, like what, you know, like I feel like only lately has it felt like, okay to really publicly critique, um, the structures we exist in, like from from my from my point of view, I know just what you mean. It's sort of like it would have marginalized you even six months ago. One would think yeah. to to critique the the dominant kind of power hierarchies, and yet something has shifted where enough people have started to do it to where if you're not engaged in that kind of critique, then you are read as as tone deaf. And I, I think it's a real um, it's a really positive development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I loved her feedback because I, I was like, yeah, I mean, 
please, you know, please be a guest on our show. Cause I'd love, I'd, I would actually just love to hear your critique. <laughs> like, I feel like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm super open to like it being an actual conversation. And I, I, what I'm hoping, I mean, it's, it's a new conversation. I don't think Maisha or I have ever really been able to look to resources on like, what's the, you know, what's the way to, to have interracial relationships, romantic relationships specifically, but honestly, it's really like any relationship or like any, you know, any, any conversation when you're sort of like, oh, there's differences to be honored. And I may not know your perspective or your experience and I can't assume it. And I can't just say that I love you and then not ask you any questions about it. Like that is just not a great way to be in relationship with other people. And I think more than anything, I I feel like the podcast is just like a way to be in conversation around, yeah, relating and our lens is, is dating. But I think it's applicable to so many things because it involves so many, so many things. Cause like if you're dating, you're in public spaces and certain public spaces might not approve of interracial relationship or you, or you might be in a situation where family doesn't, or I don't know. It's, it's all, it's, it's so interesting. (laughs) It is. Yeah. And I like your choice of words when you say lens, because we need a lens in order to apprehend uh, what can be a very large discussion. And so you've created this Mm -hmm. one of, of dating that kind of gives us access to, I don't know, a a much needed, uh, uh, kind of space of, of inquiry. So it's, it's really cool. And like I said before, I appreciated the way that, that you guys kind of have a playful, uh, conversant tone around what's going on. It makes what can be sometimes tense topics. I, I felt at least like it, it's a nice entry point uh, for me. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I want to sort of bring our discussion to a close, not, you know, not right away, but just sort of like bringing it in and ask you, what do you think is required reading at this moment? That's a great question. I don't feel like I am the authoritative voice of what we should be reading, but I can share with you what I'm reading, you know, for those of us that are in spaces of wellness and are thinking about things mindfully. Like I, I kind of wanted to comment on something you had mentioned before of like this idea of removing identity from from the practice. I don't know if I'm like paraphrasing that correctly. There is part of the experience of like being in spiritual community, being in wellness, being in like human development, all all that stuff that we both are probably very 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 well versed in and there, there hasn't been a lot of conversations about sort of the categories of, of identity that people have and hold and then consequently have been oppressed by. Um, and so two books that I'm reading right now that address that within the structures of practice um, are The Way of Tenderness um, by Zenju Earthland Manual. And her perspective is looking at awakening through race, sexuality, and gender. 
So actually bringing those identities into sort of like the Buddhist, like mindfulness, like, uh, like what does it mean to be in a black queer body, I guess is like a question when you're sitting in meditation for, for 12 hours or whatever, like, is, is that environment actually going to be supportive for if, if, is that environment going to be supportive for someone who, who is a minority or who is marginalized? If that space is white, like, is, is that person going to be able to have the experience that, that they deserve to have? Um, and we do need to think about these things because in the same, in the same vein of love is blind, um, or love is love or whatever, you know, love, (laughs) love and light or whatever people say, it's like very spiritual bypassy if you don't consider how that might harm. And if, and if the space that's being contained is actually not a safe space for certain people. Um, and then the other book I would say is Radical Dharma, which talks about race, love, and liberation, and it's written by Reverend Angel Coyota Williams, Lamarada Owens, and Jasmine Sayudula, if I hope I pronounced her name correctly. Yeah, it's this, I mean, I'm reading them both, <laughs> and I feel like Radical Dharma looks at kind of this long overdue conversation around the legacy of of racial injustice and white supremacy and how it plays out in the Buddhist community um, as well as society. So it looks at race and privilege um, and how, without looking at race and privilege, we're not really moving in the direction of collective healing. Um, And, you know, that's actually an important part (laughs) of the work. And then another book that I'm reading is How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River. And that's by Kiga Yamahata Taylor. Again, I think, I hope I'm saying this correctly. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm very interested in, in freedom, clearly. Both movement and mindfulness give me access to my freedom. And it's infinite. And I... And I hope that through teaching and through practice and through making art that it is experienced and understood um, on a very like energetic and also cellular level. I feel like we do have moments um, that we can access through, through the practice um, and must be integrated because we're also bodies that exist on this earth. <laughs> and so there's an application that I feel like is, is important. And then another book that I'm always reading that is not really a book, cent- it's, I mean, it's not a book centered around race um, or inequity, but it is a book that is, I, I already mentioned it because I really can't have a conversation without talking about David Rico, but um, How to Be an Adult in Relationships is a book that I often reference in the way in which we engage with each other simply because it really puts practice into everyday life and and everyday people interaction. I think our relationships are our greatest teacher. and, And I think that, yeah, there's an infinite depth to where we can go with the people closest to us. Um, and it's a beautiful way to integrate presence. 
So in Katie, for listeners who are interested in finding more about you and the offerings that are out there in the world, how would they go about uh, finding out? Yeah, I think the best way to be in touch with me is through Instagram. My Instagram is NDN Lifestylist. And the podcast is Dating White. I feel like those are the best ways to, to be in contact. And Gaethje and Jaka, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. I benefited greatly from this mind-expanding and generous conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Terry Gilby, Greg Archer, Shannon Hudson, and Kelly McKay. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. You can find all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast player, as well as at esalen.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions. <laughs>